0: greedy customer had almost eaten me for lunch. For 18 years, I never doubted my own oysterish sympathies, never looked far beyond my father's kitchen for occupation or for love. It was a curious kind of life, mine, even by Whitstable standards, but it was not a disagreeable or even a terribly hard one. Our working day began at seven and ended 12 hours later and through all those hours my duties were the same. While Mother cooked and Alice and my father served, I sat upon a high stool at the side of a vat of natives and scrubbed and rinsed and plied the oyster knife. Some people like their oysters raw, and for them your job is easiest, for you have merely to pick out a dozen natives from the barrel, swill the brine from them, and place them, with a piece of parsley or cress, upon a plate." But for those who took their oysters stewed or fried or baked or scalloped or put in a pie, my labours were more delicate. Then I must open each oyster and beard it and transfer it to mother's cooking pot with all of its savoury flesh intact and none of its liquor spilled or tainted. Since a supper plate will hold a dozen fish, since oyster teas are cheap, "'and since our parlour was a busy one, with room for fifty customers at once, "'well, you may calculate for yourself the vast numbers of oysters "'which passed each day beneath my prizing knife, "'and you might imagine, too, the redness and the soreness "'and the sheer salty soddenness of my fingers at the close of every afternoon. "'Even now, two decades and more since I put aside my oyster knife "'and quit my father's kitchen forever,' I feel a ghostly, sympathetic twinge in my wrist and finger joints at the sight of a fishmonger's barrel, or the sound of an oyster man's cry. And still, sometimes, I believe I can catch the scent of liquor and brine beneath my thumbnail and in the creases of my palm. I have said that there was nothing in my life when I was young but oysters, but that is not quite true. I had friends and cousins, as any girl must have who grows up in a small town in a large old family. I had my sister Alice, my dearest friend of all, with whom I shared a bedroom and a bed and who heard all my secrets and told me all of hers. I even had a kind of beau, a boy named Freddy who worked a dredging smack beside my brother Davy and my Uncle Joe on Whitstable Bay. And, last of all... I had a fondness, you might say, a kind of passion for the music hall, and more particularly for music hall songs and the singing of them. If you have visited Whitstable, you will know that this was a rather inconvenient passion, for the town has neither music hall nor theatre, only a solitary lamp post before the Duke of Cumberland Hotel, where minstrel troops occasionally sing and the Punch and Judy man, in August, sets his booth. But Whitstable is only fifteen minutes away by train from Canterbury, and here there was a music hall. The Canterbury Palace of Varieties, where the shows were three hours long, and the tickets cost sixpence, and the acts were the best to be seen, they said, in all of Kent. The palace was a small and, I suspect, a rather shabby theatre, But when I see it in my memories, I see it still with my oyster girl's eyes. I see the mirror glass which lined the walls, the crimson plush upon the seats, the plaster cupids, painted gold which swooped above the curtain. Like our oyster house, it had its own particular scent, the scent I know now of music halls everywhere the scent of wood and grease paint and spilling beer, of gas and of tobacco and of hair oil, all combined. It was a scent which as a girl I loved uncritically. Later I heard it described by theatre managers and artists as the smell of laughter, the very odour of applause. Later still, I came to know it as the essence, not of pleasure, but of grief. That, however, is to get ahead of my story. I was more intimate than most girls with the colours and scents of the Canterbury Palace, in the period, at least, of which I am thinking, that final summer in my father.